I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And I want to remind you that coming up this, when is Christmas Eve? It's Friday, right? Friday at 4 o'clock for the uh, Golf Course Road Church of Christ Christmas Eve service, heaven and nature sing. I want you to invite your friends. I want you to come, bring your family. It starts at 4 o'clock, but at 3 o'clock, we're going to have a, a winter wonderland. And I think it's supposed to be like 76 degrees that day, but we're going to have snow here at Golf Course Road on uh, Friday afternoon. So bring all of your friends, bring your families. 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, we'll have a, uh, a candlelight worship service uh, inside the worship center here. And there are a lot of these little cards at each of the exits. And so when we are finished in here together this morning, certainly want you to pick up a few of these and invite your friends to Heaven and Nature Sing this Friday, Christmas Eve at four o'clock. Over the Thanksgiving holiday, um, I saw a statistic that said 42% of Americans would enjoy Christmas more if there were no presents, which tells me 58% of those polled were children, right? The reason that number is so high has nothing to do with receiving gifts. It has everything to do with giving the gifts, right? And buying the presents. The wise men in the Bible make it look so easy, but they didn't have to deal with shopping malls and supply chain issues and what in the world do we get grandpa this year they didn't they didn't have to worry about that and you know you've got these little kids who always play the wise men in the church pageant you know at the church play I heard about these three little kids who were the wise men in the church play and that night they they walked up on the stage in their little costumes and one boy stepped forward towards the manger and he said here's some gold. And the other boy stepped forward and he said, here's some myrrh. And the third boy stepped forward and he said, here, Frank sent this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and Christmas can be stressful, right? We, we want everything to be so perfect at Christmas and it rarely is. Uh, there was a preacher who, who wanted a big sign on the front of their church building during the Christmas season, so he was going to have a deacon do it for him, and he wrote down on a piece of paper exactly what he wanted, and he handed it to the deacon to take care of it, and the preacher drove up to the church that early that Sunday morning, and he saw this massive banner on the front of the church building. It said, unto us a child is born, eight feet long, three feet wide. <laughs> Not exactly what the preacher had in mind. Christmas time is just about the only time of the year, honestly, when we look at the birth of Jesus. And I think there's at least a couple of reasons for that. One of the reasons is the incarnation of God is very difficult, if not impossible, to understand. Emmanuel means God with us. And for God to be with us is extraordinary and it's wonderful. But for God to become us, for the creator of heaven and earth to become a human being, it's just too hard for us to fully understand. And because it's hard to comprehend, our belief in the incarnation can just be an affirming nod to an abstract concept. Or it's just a doctrine that doesn't really translate into the practical matters of a Christian life. You know, it doesn't really impact how I live every day. And so we know the birth story, but, story, but we don't know the reason why. We know the characters and the plot. We know all the players, but the details of the story can get lost 
or get a little fuzzy at best. And so, as we've said for the last couple of weeks, we can do one of two things. We can, we can look at the incarnation as a complex and confusing theological concept, and we can kind of leave it in the background and pull it out and dust it off and look at it every December, or we can embrace the incarnation as a way of engaging our lives that totally changes everything. Emmanuel means God with us. Us with God. So whatever God is doing, we're in it together. Jesus means God with us, not God instead of us. And as children of God, we're called to imitate God and join him in doing the kind of work he's doing. We are to become like God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 makes that pretty clear. We all reflect the Lord's glory. We all are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, as we're becoming like God, we do this all the time with the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We do it at least every Sunday, and typically most of us are doing some of this every day. You know, we'll look at Jesus' life, and we'll say, yeah, we need to serve others. We need to feed the hungry. We need to, to heal the sick. We need to bear the burdens of those around us. And we need to, uh, to break down all the walls between us. And, and we'll study Jesus' death. And we'll decide, yes, we need to be more sacrificial. We need to be more giving. We need to forgive unconditionally. And, and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And we remember that we, too, are living a brand new life in Christ. And the whole world is different now. Everything has changed now. And, and we see people differently. And we see the world differently. And we take risks now for the kingdom of God because we know we're never going to die. We do this all the time, right? God reveals who he is and what he's doing through Jesus. Jesus said it himself. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? Just checking to make sure y'all are still awake, all right? We're just getting started, all right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what Jesus says. And so our question this morning is, what was God doing in that stable in Bethlehem? What does the birth of Jesus tell us about God's will and about God's ways? And how might we partner with God in his work? Well, what is God's work? We know that God's work is a work of reconciliation. And we know that God has given that same work to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the whole world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. See how Emmanuel is God with us. Us with God. Not God instead of us. We are partners. We are co-ministers with God. And I believe that we can see that in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But I also believe we can see it in the birth. We, we, we can see in the beautiful birth of our Lord Jesus Christ exactly what God is doing and how he's doing it. And I think it can train us. I think it can teach us to join him 
in that work. And we're going to use Mary's song in Luke chapter 1 as kind of a guide for this lesson this morning. J.E. has already read this to us uh, from around the table. We're going to sing this song here in just a few minutes together. I think that Mary's song has some real insights into what God is doing when he comes to us in the form of baby Jesus. The first thing the birth of Jesus tells us about our partnership with God is that Humility is our primary posture. We pursue the work of our God in humble ways. Always. No arrogance. No lording it over anybody. No beating anybody over the head with a stick. Or a Bible. Or a doctrine. Or a tradition. We do God's work the way he does it. In humility. Look at how God comes to us. God's way is to join us on level ground. He comes to where we are. He serves our needs. He honors our humanity, and he does it with us. You know, God very easily could have come to this earth to dominate us, to force us, to overpower us. He could have pushed us around and pushed us to where he wanted us to go, even when it's for our own good. But he didn't. God comes to us in perfect lowness and humility as a human baby. And so Christians are always gentle and inviting. We're never forceful or overbearing. We don't bully. We never boast or brag. We don't manipulate people or situations. We join. We submit. Just like Mary Look at Mary's song. She glorifies the Lord. She rejoices in God her Savior because God has acted kindly toward her in her humble state, the state of a servant. Mary is the very definition of humility when she tells the angel in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Mary is exactly the kind of a person God chooses to use in mighty ways. She is a poor peasant girl with nothing to her name. Mary has no credentials here. Mary's bringing nothing to the table here except her availability and her eagerness to serve. That's what God is looking for in a partner. She doesn't have any training. She doesn't have any experience in what God is about to do. But she's willing to jump into it with her whole self. We generally expect great things out of God. And we typically expect God to do great things through great people and through great churches. But what we see over and over again in Scripture is that our God shows us his greatness by working with anybody, anywhere, at any time. Whoever's willing, God will partner with them. God prefers to partner with those who don't have a lot to offer. Remember our Lord? My power is made perfect in weakness. So God with us, us with God, has nothing to do with your social status or your skills and abilities. It has zero to do with your education or your career or your zip code. And the mother of Jesus proves it. Jesus as a baby, as a helpless, vulnerable, totally dependent child, 
shows this to us. Humility is our primary posture. And here's the second thing. Everybody is our target audience. Look at Mary's song. It's very easy to hear what I think is a radical tone in her praise. Mary is singing about a revolution. The birth of Jesus, look at it, it scatters the proud, it brings down the rulers, it lifts up the humble, it feeds the hungry, and the birth of Jesus is going to heal the sick. When Almighty God comes to us as a baby in a barn, he is overthrowing the world's order and the world's hierarchies and the chains of command. He's destroying the gap between the rich and the poor, and he is breaking down all of the barriers between us. Jesus is born in Bethlehem to show us we all belong to the same family. We're all equally lacking and we are all equally blessed. Remember a couple of weeks ago we noticed all the diversity in the birth stories. Remember they're all right there together at the manger in that stable in Bethlehem. The rich and the poor the uh, blue-collar shepherds and the, the professional wise scholars, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles, the, 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 everybody's there. Everybody's in this picture. And so God with us means God with all of us. And you look at the diversity just in Jesus' hand-picked apostles. You, you look at the people he sought out. Again, the rich and the poor, the weak and the strong, the Jew and the Gentile. The women and the men. Nicodemus, the esteemed Jewish teacher of the law and the five-time divorced, desperate Samaritan woman at the well. That's our God. Jesus shows this to us. Jesus reaches out to everybody. Jesus came to seek and to save and to reconcile everybody. Jesus came here to incorporate everybody into his body. And it started the night he was born. So what does that mean? What, what does this mean for me as an individual Christian? What does this mean for us as a church at GCR? Well, a couple of things. One, we don't recognize any distinctions out there. We don't play into the world's game of dividing people based on gender or race or national politics, or who somebody voted for, or any of the other things that divide people today. We don't get sucked into the name-calling and the self-righteous judgment. That is decidedly unchristlike behavior. It's ungodly. God, through Christ, draws all people to himself. No distinctions. No favoritism. In fact, Jesus went out of his way to reach out to and minister to those who did not fit in. He sought out the weak and the poor and the marginalized of society. And we partner with our God in doing the same thing. We bring into the kingdom the outsiders and the foreigners and the poor and the sick. And listen to me, even our enemies... The enemies of our comfort zone. The enemies of our decency and order. The enemies of our property values. The enemies of our traditions. We go and we bring them in. Why? Because when we were God's enemies, he sent his son here as a baby in order to save us. 
God with us, us with God means we don't dare strive for anything less than that. It's been a long time since somebody said amen. Amen. We believe this, right? Right? The second thing about this is we should also pledge no distinctions in here. Inside this church family, inside this room on Sunday mornings, no distinctions. I think we should acknowledge that already we are a fairly diverse group of Christians at GCR. We don't look like it, but you don't have to scratch too deep to find it. We are 500 or so different people with different views and different backgrounds and different experiences. 500 different people with different gifts and abilities and preferences. Every single one of us has unique gifts and talents that are given to us by our Father. That should be celebrated. The diversity we already have here is God-ordained and our differences ought to be honored. One of the biggest mistakes we can make as a church family is to elevate one expression of Christianity over another. It might be the biggest mistake we make, expecting and even in some cases insisting that every Christian should look and act the same way. Disciples of Jesus who are more naturally emotional and expressive can think that those who are less emotional and expressive are also less spiritual. Some of us really enjoy a good worship service. Some of us really enjoy a good Bible study. And there are those of us in both places who think that the people in the other places just don't get it. The person who spends hours every day in prayer and the person who prepares communion and repairs the ceiling tiles ought to both be given honor and thanksgiving for the contributions that they make. To expect or insist that one Christian should be a carbon copy of another Christian totally goes against God's divinely ordained plan. Ephesians 4 says, To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up. And this is how it works. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Our differences in here and out there should not make us nervous. Our differences in here should not scare any of us. Our differences are a sign of maturity. Our variety is an indicator that we have the knowledge of the Son of God. Our diversity is a, a symbol of our unity in the faith. If all of our differences are given room to contribute, if all of our differences in here are given mutual respect and mutual collaboration, then brothers and sisters, we will be a church that attains to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Amen. Our community of faith needs the intellectual and the emotional, both. We need the visionary and the practical, both. We need the reserved and the demonstrative. We need the young 
and the old. We need the women and the men, both. God through Christ honors and celebrates our differences. One woman sings like an angel and the woman right behind her sings like a stuck donkey. And don't look at anybody right now, okay? Don't, don't make eye contact during this point. The point is, both angels and donkeys were present at the barn in Bethlehem. And they were all giving glory to God, amen? They were all praising God for his giving and generous and loving heart. This God who comes to us to be with us. That's a beautiful image, right? That's a glorious picture. It's a, it's a masterpiece. That is a divine vision. And we know, we know this because we've tried before. It's impossible for us to accomplish that by ourselves. It's impossible. And so the last thing I want to point out this morning is that God's faithfulness is our only hope. Our God began his wonderful work of salvation. He made the first move and he initiated his ministry of reconciliation by sending his only son to be born as a human baby. And as his children, we know, we know God is going to fulfill his promise. He is going to finish what he started. Our God keeps his promises. Amen? Our God finishes what he starts. Our God always completes his work. I want you to look at the very end of Mary's song. Uh, we're going to sing this here in a second, and I just love it. Listen to the last couple of verses here. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. That's our only hope, that God's going to do what he said he would do. That's the only chance we've got, this faithfulness of our God. And as a human baby, Jesus Christ demonstrates this total dependence on the Father. Look at the Son of God. As a newborn baby, again, tiny, fragile, helpless, weak. He can't clothe himself. He can't feed himself. He can't even lift up his own head. This is the very picture of total dependence. This is the very definition of helplessness. And it's the exact same way without exception that every single one of us came into this world. Every single one of us. Born this exact same way. When you're a baby, you can't do anything for yourself. Right? Listen to me. That never changes. That does not change. Look at the baby Jesus. King Herod is plotting to kill him just as soon as he finds out that he's born. Herod is calling the emergency summit with his military leaders and, and the religious leaders of the land he's occupying to hunt down and murder Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a chance here. He's a baby. He has no royal court. He has no military guards. He doesn't have a palace. Jesus doesn't have an army. He's totally helpless in the arms of his young peasant mother. He is protected only by his one single impoverished dad who comes from this insignificant town in Nazareth. And Herod wants him dead. 
Jesus' only chance is God. The angel told Mary, nothing is impossible with God. And God delivers. The angel of the Lord tells the wise men not to go back through Jerusalem so as not to tip off Herod. And then the angel of the Lord tells Joseph, you get Mary and get the baby and get yourselves down to Egypt. Now, how are they going to do that? The Egyptian border is at least 80 miles away from Bethlehem. How are they going to do that? They're, they're dirt poor. They've got to have money to travel on. They've got to have money to live on while they're in Egypt. Well, look at God. He sends a caravan of rich foreigners to baby Jesus' front door the day before with gold and with all kinds of other expensive gifts. And look at Egypt. At this time in Alexandria, there was already a well-established Jewish settlement of over a million Jews with synagogues and a Jewish educational system. Our God provided for and protected the child Jesus in Egypt until Herod died. The baby Jesus models for us this total dependence on God. He is helpless without God. Jesus is dead without God. And this dependence on God, this, this complete submission of body and will, this total surrender to God to deliver and save is modeled by Jesus from the manger in Bethlehem to the garden in Gethsemane. All the way to the cross at Golgotha. So what happens to us? Where does our arrogance come from? Our selfish will and our independent attitudes. Where does that come from? For all the fuss we put on to, to bolster our insecurities and assert our independence and, and fight for our rights. For all the stuff we accumulate, the clothes and the houses and the degrees and the positions and the bank accounts and the retirement funds, for all of that, the fact is every single one of us comes into this world naked and helpless and completely dependent. We own nothing. And brothers and sisters, that never really changes. Every breath we take is a gracious gift. From our God. We're born this way. We're created this way. It is totally within our makeup to be needy and dependent. But we don't always see it that way. For some reason, we see dependence as some kind of weakness instead of as God's eternal plan. We try to hide our dependence or we attempt to reject our neediness altogether. We say it all the time. We can take care of ourselves. I don't need you to take care of me. I can take care of myself. I don't need the church to take care of me. I can take care of myself. By implication, if you're not careful, I don't need God to take care of me. There are some things I need God for, but I can take care of myself. Jesus' lowly birth in a manger to these two impoverished peasants in this tiny village of Bethlehem shows us the truth. The truth about ourselves. It affirms our desperate neediness and our total helplessness. His birth honors our 
naked and dependent condition. And it shows us that by trying to cover up that neediness or trying to run away from that dependence by trying to get more money or more power or trying to exercise our rights, that's, that's not the way to go. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. The way to gain life, brothers and sisters, is to lose it. The way to a full life is to empty yourself. We lay down all of our power, all of our prestige, all of our position. We surrender it totally to God, every bit of it, because he has started something in you. He's already taken the first steps with you, and he is faithful always to finish what he has started. Amen? Amen. I think all of us right now could use a little hope. I think all of us right now could use a reminder to stop wringing our hands long enough so we could receive a little hope. To hear it again. To, to see it fully and, and, and to really understand the truth. The truth is that in the middle of the crisis, in the middle of the empire's occupation, in the middle of the government-ordered census, in the middle of the stress and the tension and the conflict, and the violence, in the middle of whatever the crisis is of the moment, in the middle of whatever your crisis is, in your moment, God is with us. He is with us in Jesus Christ. And by His grace, we are with Him. Church, that is our bedrock Christian belief. That God so loves the world that he became a part of it with us. God Almighty put on our flesh and blood and he comes into the world he created to be with us, to bless us and save us, to restore us and comfort us, to forgive us and to live with us forever. And I know God can seem really, really slow. Sometimes God can seem as slow as Christmas. Amen? But we know our God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Our God is faithful to finish what he has started in you. And in all of us here at GCR and throughout the entire world, our God is faithful. And he came here to this earth as a baby one clear, starry night in a manger in Bethlehem so we could see it. And so today, we could sing it. Stand with me, church. Let's sing together.